the What I Meant to Say podcast. I'm your host, Wendy Jones, founder of Be Better Media and a mom of four, passionate about human connection. Throughout my journey, I have experienced many What I Meant to Say moments, but since life doesn't give us do-overs, I've created a space to reflect and tell our stories again with a little more grace for ourselves and the hope that we can help others and be better for having listened. In this conversation, I had the pleasure of talking with New York Times bestselling author and entrepreneur Jim Karras. Jim's story caught my eye when he and his daughter Olivia wrote the book Confessions of a Division I Athlete. No surprise, I found Jim's insight on parenting and leadership insightful, and I know you will too. So excited to be here with you today. I have Jim Karras joining us. He is a New York Times bestselling author and um, Chicago fitness legend from everything that I've seen. Um, I have been carrying around your book. Um, so sweet. Confessions of a Division I Athlete. A Dad and Daughter's Guide to Survival. And I read it for the first time last year, and I was blown away by the connection between you and your daughter and the way you guys put this book together. So thank you so much for joining me today. Um, it's an absolute honor. Thank you. Um, and I just want to give the people that are listening a little bit of background on um, you know, how you got into the fitness world, first of all. Um, I love... I, I, from what my vantage point, I've seen you, you transformed some pain into your life's purpose. So do you want to, let's start there. Like, sure, sure. About that. well, I was a chubby child, which interestingly enough, a lot of people in my industry struggled as children and teens and even adults with weight issues. Um, I'm the youngest of two, I have one older brother and he was in incredible shape. And I was, you know, doesn't Jimmy have a cute pot belly is what my parents and grandparents used to say, which is not the kind of thing you say to a child. It's one of the, my, my earliest childhood memories was that. And so I was always struggling with up 20, down 20, up 20, down 20, kind of the classic yo-yo dieter. Um, I went in my second semester of my junior year to the London School of Economics. And I really made a decision. I was a bad smoker, Wendy. I mean, I was a big smoker back then. And I'm like, you're going to cut out the smoking. You're going to start to get your weight in order. You're going to have a new routine. I think it's really important that people take advantage of if you have a new opportunity to start new behaviors and set new pillars in your day. So I started running in Hyde Park and Kensington Gardens in tree-torn tennis shoes. Um, hurt like crazy. I can't tell you the pain that I was in. And back then in 1982, most people clutched their children as I ran by because people weren't running unless you were running from something you most likely shouldn't have been doing. So I started with the running. Um, it kind of worked back and forth, back and forth. Then I got into aerobics. I mean, I'm 61. So this was 36 years ago, kind of at the very early stages of that craze that occurred. And one day the teacher didn't show up for the Saturday morning class. So I was frustrated and I looked around and I said, after like 10 minutes, I got so annoyed that I was there and I wasn't able to work out. I said, if someone's got the exercise music, I'll teach, I've memorized the routine. As you well know, you never wanna memorize an exercise routine. You wanna always keep changing it up. So I got up there and I um, taught the class. I was a private portfolio manager at the time. I had a degree from the Wharton School of Business in Finance. So after the two classes I taught, the head of the club, the manager was waving me over. I'm, I'm looking over my shoulder, like, who, who are you waving at? And he's like, you. I'm like, okay, come here. Do you want a job? I said, I don't know. What do I get? 
And he said, a free membership and $4 an hour. I said, I'll take it. And from there, you know, it was a portfolio manager in the, during the day, teaching aerobics at night and weekends. And then I switched to another club and a woman from Beverly Hills came up to me after a class once and said, can I talk to you? And she said, would you be willing to be my personal fitness trainer? I didn't know what she was talking about because there literally were virtually none. This was kind of when Body by Jake first came on the scene and you know some Arnold Schwarzenegger things and Jane Fonda and all of that. But personal training was in its really, you only heard about some major celebrities that would have a personal trainer. You very rarely saw it. So from there, I built a business and um, built studios. I did it in home, I did it in offices, built the studios. And then in the year 2000, I wrote my first book. The business plan for the body and this was after wendy i actually snagged diane sawyer as a client because i did a pro project called lock the door lose the weight we took seven overweight people put them in the house in the north shore suburbs actually where i grew up of chicago and gave them a diet doctor a nutritionist a chef a psychologist who really had her work cut out for her because the people went nuts and me i was the fitness trainer if you look back at the beginning of The Biggest Loser, we were on ABC with Good Morning America. NBC clearly knocked off our idea and added the prize component. And a little other side story, that job on The Biggest Loser was between Bob Harper and me. We went down to the wire and um, I was pretty upset when I didn't get it, um, as you can imagine. But then, you know, the show had its own genesis and this and that, and my career was moving on. And at the end of the Lock the Door, Lose the Weight program, we were all flown to Times Square Square Studios in New York to be live on Good Morning America. And during the break, I told Diane Sawyer she needed to lose between 20 and 25 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> and as she said on Letterman about six months later, nobody talks to me that way. But I got her attention and ultimately would fly to New York every week to train her Monday through Friday. And she lost 22 pounds and made my first book number one on the New York Times bestseller list. So it was a real, it just, it, it, the cards were in my favor. Um, and I was really very, very excited. Wow. Uh, what I love about that is all those intersections of passion, right? I mean, you Absolutely. had, it, it's like, what, oh, what's the quote? It's going to, um, luck is really one opportunity. Oh, it's going yes. to, opportunity exactly. meets training, right? I mean, you, you've, I'm, I'm botching that quote, but that, those, I mean, you had the education, you went after your, you know, down that path and you to go to Wharton and be in London at the London School of Economics, but then seize on those passions of, of you know, the, the, nothing's ruled out, right? It's, it's like everything expands when you hit on those passion points. And that, to me, that's what I'm hearing in your story. It's oh, It's, it's very, very People looked at me like I was nuts, Wendy. You're what? I said, I'm a personal fitness trainer. Really? I mean, they thought I completely lost it and then just kind of used some of the business things I had learned and a lot of hard work. I've got to tell you, I trained people seven days a week for decades. And that that's interesting to, to, to launch into your, your family role and this role that comes through in your book about the, you know, the relationship that you've had with both of your children. So there's Olivia that you wrote the book with and then Evan, right, your son, and you get into right. sibling rivalry and and those relationships that we have with our kids. And one of my favorite quotes has come to me, I'm as a mother of four parenting is an art, not a science, right? I mean, we are always figuring out the next thing. And then there's always so much hindsight 
and that that gift that we can give to future people because we've been through it. And that's what I see in your book. Um, but with working seven days a week, how did you how did you develop that relationship with your kids when your your work schedule was like that? It's so bad. It was having kids was really important to me. I was married at the time. And even when I was in Chicago, when Olivia was very little, I really spent the weekends when I was home, I was with her. Um, literally, I really, as a family, we did a lot of things together with my former wife and Olivia. Then when Evan came on the scene, I was in New York six weeks later every week. So again, on the weekends, when I was with them, I was kind of full on dad because I figured I have got to make up for the fact that I'm just not around here, you know, as often as I would have wanted to be, but they were both, they're both so very different. And I love the whole experience. I loved it from the beginning all the way up to now. I probably like now a little better than when they were babies. <laughs> I, I can so feel you on that. It's yeah. such an amazing journey. My kids are from uh, my daughter. My oldest will be 22 next month or this month. Um, and my youngest is 15. So they're seven years from top to bottom. Wow. And you, yeah, you went to work fast. Yeah. <laughs> and when I, when I reflect on those early years where I was like, man, I love these kids. This is such an amazing sweet spot, right? I mean, to have, I love yeah, they mine are 25 and 21 and it's just a, a great age and they're full of energy. Um, and they're just so interested. And we talk about everything. We really almost leave nothing off the table to talk about because that's oh. the kind of relationship I mean, with an appropriateness, of course, I wanted to have with my kids. And what I find interesting, Wendy, and I bet you experienced the same thing, their friends love coming over here. And I'll say to them, guys, why do your friends like coming over here? Because they like to talk to you. I said, because you ask them questions. And I always say, well, don't their parents ask them questions? And they'll say things like, because a lot of Olivia's friends from Michigan, University of Michigan, were athletes. No, they want to talk baseball. After baseball, they don't talk about it. I said, nothing else? They said, nope. And I'm like, I love to talk to the kids. I, they're, they're the best because I want them to learn from my successes, but way more from my failures. If you see this coming towards you, look out. And yeah. I, I want them to learn from the mistakes I've made. Yeah, I think that is such an incredible, that gift of transparency that we can give our kids rather than, and I, I've been through a divorce. It's actually one of the things that one of my greatest catalysts, I mean, it's such a, it's a devastating thing to have to go through. And both personally and for your children. But the thing that came through that for me was like the real need to be real, to, to, to really use that pain as a transformative purpose and come out the other side going, wow, this is what I realized. Like I was trying to uphold a certain image rather than really feel into something. And so when that comes through, you know, whatever failure comes through, it really is just an opportunity to grow. And the more we can teach our kids that. Absolutely. I was very fortunate. I had a very good friend at the time who since has moved, who was a therapist. I also had my own therapist, of course. I've had a battalion of therapists <laughs> for my years. And they really instilled in me precisely what you're saying. Don't make everything look perfect. If you're like, you're having a bad day, you can say to your kids, you know, dad's just not having a good day today. Cause that gives them the license when they're having a bad day to say, yeah, I'm, I'm, I think I'm having one of those days you had last week. And I think it's so important that you don't just say, how's everything? Oh, it's great. It's wonderful. Everything's terrific. No, it's not, you know, yeah. let them know that so that when they're feeling that they're able to let themselves feel that and process it. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, it's such a powerful lesson. And I agree with you. I do. I see why, why kids, 
want to hang out. They want to be real too. So, um, so to let's get into the book and how, how this became a project and how did you and Olivia come up with this concept to write this book together? Well, I, I wrote about it, if, if you may recall, um, about five, six years ago, I was writing for the Chicago splash section of the Chicago Sun-Times and they let me write about whatever I wanted to write about. So it was before the Rio Olympics and Olivia was for a semester, about five months on the elite track, because there's two different tracks in gymnastics, collegiate or elite, which does the worlds and the Olympics, et cetera. And so the name of the article was Confessions of a Rio Wannabe. So that's where the confessions thing came from. And we had a blast writing it together. And then honestly, and I wasn't an athlete. I never have been. I lift weights. I you know run around, but that was never my thing. When these athletes graduate, Wendy, it's, it's almost devastating. They lose their school. They lose their identity. They lose their sport. And in the case of gymnastics, you can't do gymnastics light. You can't like, like go on an ice skating rink if you're a skater or go play soccer with, with a, a group, you know, recreational group in your city or your town, you're done. So she was pretty, she was pretty down when she got home and a little directionless. So we talked about doing a book. This was, I'm very fortunate. This is my seventh book. So I had gone through the drill before and I really kind of pushed her on it to give her some purpose. We use that word a lot in our house. And so when she'd been home for about two months, I'm like, honey, why don't, why don't we tinker with it? Why don't we start to, to work on it? And what's funny is I didn't understand with an athlete, I would say, Olivia, work on the book. Nothing, Wendy, zero. Then I learned to say, Olivia, work on chapter four, you know, the section about when you were a little girl. She'd come out of her room with like 20 pages, you know, two hours later. And then the most, the part about it that I love, this was hands down the most rewarding project I've ever done, is we would read aloud. So you notice how we flip-flop chapters back and forth and we interjected. We would read them aloud and edit it together. And I think we, we've done so much press on the book. I think we wrote it in about three and a half months. So we really hunkered down, but we had a routine. We got up, we had breakfast, we wrote. We went to my studio, we, we worked out with one of my trainers. We got back, we wrote. We went out to lunch and we'd go with our computers. And it was so funny because we're so animated. And the people at the tables next to us would so often say, what are you two doing? We're like, we're writing a book together. And then the, what's it about? So it was really a lot of fun. And then the pandemic hit. And then, you know, we edited it and she was my buddy for a solid year and a half. And um, I didn't mind the pandemic, which I know is somewhat not PC. I liked the slowdown of life. Oh I needed it. Can I tell you how much that resonates with me? I will look back on those eight weeks that we were absolutely shut down as honestly, like some of the greatest weeks of my life. I, I'm upset with you. I remember looking at the weekend where everything shut down and looking at my calendar and going, I have no idea how I'm going to pull this all off. I'll make it happen, but I have no idea. And then all of a sudden, everything was just gone. gone. And I had these four kids, plus my daughter came home with her college roommate from Spain who couldn't, she was an, a volleyball player that couldn't get home. So I ended up with these five kids in my house having dinner every night, no practice to drive to, taking walks after dinner, long talks. I was like, I think I've died and gone to heaven. Loved it. I'm, and I'm so I hear you. And as that's not meant to be insensitive, there was just something that was supposed to be taken from the great slowdown 
for a lot of us. So, and I don't think those things are mutually exclusive. You know, what can you take from it to learn? So the fact that, so you edited the book during, during that, and that didn't take very long because it was an editor I had worked with before that we met in New York, who's fantastic. And so it would just, you know, started to roll. And then of course we had to try to figure out the pub date because, you know, the printing was so slow, getting the paper was all these supply chain things we keep hearing about. Boy, it's very, very true. And so, you know, it finally came out a year ago and we had just a a great time doing press, laughing. We did tons of Zoom, as you can imagine. And the dog would would, would bomb us when we're on a Zoom. And I mean, it just kind of made it fun. We, Olivia adopted, rescued slash overpaid for a dog, a Corgi um, during the pandemic. And she's the love of my life. We share custody of her because Olivia lives a block away. So we we alternate days or nights and I love it. So we just did stuff we had never done before. Yeah, that is so beautiful. I, I, um, getting the, the, some of, there's so many things in this book that I want to, I want to capture. And one of the reasons that I've started this be better movement that I, I, um, is my podcast being part of that is this triangle between coaches, parents, and athletes. It's just full of amazing things and Uh a lot, a lot of controversial things, a lot of, angst and a lot of beauty, right? There's so much in that triangle and I see it come out in your book. And one of the, one of the stories I kind of wanted to highlight today was, um, the conflict that you had with uh, Olivia's coach and one of her, you know, pretty much the coach that was there through her club development, right? Before she went to Michigan. And you tell a story, um, in one of the chapters about, um, really being thrown under the bus. Yes. Um, because you were by all of the moms uh, because you were advocating for holidays off. You know, it's so hard, Wendy. She's Eastern European. She um, grew up in Ukraine when you're and then she was an elite gymnast. When you grow up in some place like that, school has no bearing whatsoever. You don't have friends. You don't have boyfriends or girlfriends. You don't go out. You don't have tests. She just didn't understand that here in Chicago, these girls have pressures. Do you know, no, she can't stay for full training. She has a huge chemistry test tomorrow. She, she would go ballistic on us for picking our daughter up an hour early to enable her to do this test. Think of the stress okay. of having to, this is what I can't even believe Olivia did. I never knew what was going on. So I was really a um, not terribly uh, attuned parent of an athlete to really understand the pressure she was under. And all the mothers, she wanted them on holidays. She wanted them on Sundays. And I just said, Olga, we can't do this. And all the mothers said, oh, I never, I said, all of us agree. We can't, you, you can't have our, our daughters that often. Oh, we never said that, Olga. Oh, we didn't say that. I was like, oh my God, I just got thrown completely under the bus. And they, they were afraid of her, the coach. Yeah, I mean. Part of it. Right. And, and there's that whole, as you explained, the track, the elite versus the collegiate track and that concept that they grades matter. You know, I talk to athletes all the time and I'm like, it's student athlete for a reason. You have to get those grades no matter how hard you're working and you, yeah, you, you know, you have the talent and you're, that will get you to the school, but if you don't have the grades, it's so, so working, having that understanding, not to mention not having, I mean, as hard as your daughter's working to not have her on holidays, like to just wake up on what, whatever that is, five days a year and go, this day belongs to us, and right? You know, funny, Wendy, my son, 
because of all the uh, emphasis on Olivia's gymnastics that I started to understand was a problem. I didn't really know it in the beginning, but it was. Mm -hmm. I sent him to travel all over the place. There's this great group called Rustic Pathways, and he went to Costa Rica, he went to New Zealand, he went to Australia. Now, as Olivia has, you know, is a normal person, you know, after having graduated, she has said to me on more than one occasions, I'm really mad. I didn't get a chance to travel the way Evan did. I said, honey, there was no option. We had one week a year, the last week in August was all we ever had. Mm -hmm. And so it, it's funny, the anger that comes up sometimes of what she missed out on, on account of her sport. Yeah. And I, I, that definitely comes through in your book in the fact that like, you know, there's so many different paths in this life, but her path required her to give up so much. And it really comes through that you guys were trying to communicate that to this next generation, Absolutely. understand that there's a price to being great at one thing at, and for her it's gymnastics. And honestly, I was, as I read this book, I'm clearly, I'm six feet tall. I went, I took gymnastics as a kid and I loved it. I, I taped oh, balance beams on my rug. We had my mom, I rolled everywhere, but I went from five feet to six feet from 10 to 13. So clearly that wasn't my calling, but I carried around it. You reminded me, I carried around this book called the very young gymnast. I was a Mary Lou Retton, 1984 oh, sure. Olympic were my, that was my well, first Olivia, Her daughter is one of Olivia's besties. Oh Mary my Lou's goodness. Daughter. And uh -huh. I, so I, all this brought back, I was like, oh, I forgot how much I love gymnastics, but I digress because I don't, I know there's not a sport out there. And this also comes through in your book that is more rigorous mind, body, and spirit. It, it's brutal. It's, it's, it's brutal. You too. It's, you, you're on a team when you do the collegiate route, but it's still you. And when you go off that beam, which you notice we devoted two chapters to beam up and beam down, um, it's devastating. And you've got to get up and finish your routine. I mean, this is the part that is just so, and then you may have to do the other three apparatus. Olivia wasn't all around all the time. She really did. She mostly loved the floor and vault. And she really learned uh, a really easy bar routine that got her high scores. There's a such a, I, I've learned such a whole process of determining. It's like money ball. What moves do you do that gets the best point connection? That's the easiest on your body so that you're not getting hurt. And it was so interesting. And the beam was always a problem. It scared the, the life out of me. I just, every time she'd get on there, I'd smile and inside I was dying. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And that's another, I mean, that is such a thing as an, as a parent of an athlete and, and living, you know, we, we do have that problem in, in sports right now and has been as, as I've raised my kids, I've seen it that living vicariously through your child. Right. But even if you're not doing that, you're still feeling every up and down, you're feeling like the pain and the pressure and the, the, the success and the failure. What was that? What was that transformation like for you through her career from when she was little to the oh, top of her career? Yeah. It was really important that she always knew and she really liked this, that neither her mother nor I were living vicariously through her and her sport. This was hers, her decision, her, if she wanted to stop, stop. If you want to continue, continue. We really tried and we really kept an eye on her mental health. You know, it was just very um, fortunate that when the whole thing came down when the book came out a year ago, all the mental health, uh, Naomi Osaka, and then, uh, you know, Gabby Douglas, I mean, all of that came out right when we had this, that people really don't realize with these athletes, 
the insane pressure that's on them. And not to say that a debater doesn't have pressure or you know someone who's an artist or whatever, there's pressures in all these things, but the mind-body connection of an athlete is something I wasn't aware of. And I really wanted parents to, learn, to understand if your child is really showing a great love of a sport, know what you're getting yourself into. Yeah. Because it's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. How do you, um, in seeing Olivia, you talk about her being this little spark plug from day one. I mean, I have the picture of her pushing. My kids all had that, that push cart too. (laughs) And my, my firstborn ran around with that. And she's a, she's a beach volleyball player at TCU today, but they do have that energy that has to go. And how, um, how do you recommend for parents to, to start to recognize the personality traits of their kids and not project on them, you know, just to really let yourself just observe and see how that can create purpose. And I come back to this um, whole point of asking questions. We always talk to both kids like adults. We didn't do a lot of Google Gaga stuff and all that. They also came everywhere with us. I mean, we would go out to dinner once a week, just us. The rest of the time the kids were with us because we live right downtown in Chicago. So that's just a part of life. And so they were exposed to everything. And then their mom was a stage actress who worked all over the country about six months out of the year. So the kids were flying back and forth from San Francisco and Washington to DC and everything. So they had a very kind of adult-ish childhood. Um, and so we were able to talk. I would say to Olivia, how, how are you feeling? She goes, I'm just, I've just got, I, I just need to do something. I'd say, well, let's go out and run. Do you know what I'm saying? Let's go out and do this. She had to move both my children and myself included. I would be in a uh, facility if it wasn't for exercise because of my brain. It's totally, you know, I get this all the time. Do you exercise all the time because of your body and how you look? I'm like, no, this is 95% for the neck up, 5% for the neck down. And I really strongly believe that. That's what keeps me motivated. I know my brain and my kids are hardwired the same way. They need activity. We don't, we never sat around and watched TV. I mean, I do now more than I did back then, but the kids really didn't want to do that. They wanted to be doing something. So we had to take their lead. Yeah. I, I, that speaks so much to um, what I watch in today's culture. It makes me fearful of what I see in today's culture with screens and social media and the things that even my kids didn't have access to and that I now go out. I was having lunch with my daughter at urban plates a couple of weeks ago. And I saw a family sitting and it was multi-generational. There were clearly three generations sitting there and they, nobody had a phone and the little kids didn't have a phone or an iPad. The children were coloring. Everyone was talking, Um, happened to be a Japanese family. Everyone had tea at the end. And it struck me the cultural implications and I stopped the family on the way out. And I said, I, I talked to the mom. I said, I just want you to know, like, that was so beautiful. And one of the moms said, were we too loud? And I said, literally, I was choked up because you don't see that anymore. No. But right. I said, you're doing your kids such an amazing service. Because I remember the first time we walked into a restaurant with four little kids and they asked us if we wanted these big screens, like <laughs> a pop up on the table. And I looked at them like, are you crazy? Like they need to learn to sit. And pay attention and have conversation. And it's done. It's a, it's the answer right now is so hand the iPad, hand the phone. It's a dying culture and it makes, it breaks my heart. Creating really socially awkward kids. Yeah. They don't know how to interact. Uh, As I said, I have kids over here a lot and I also take them out to dinner a lot. And I'll say to both of them, you know, the rule with the phones. And they're like, oh, they know dad, they know. 
You know what I'm saying? That okay. I'm not sitting in a restaurant with six other kids, my kids and four more on their cell phones. This is not going to fly. Yeah. And like one of them knows they have to say, my best friend, Julie, just broke up with her boyfriend. So I do have to keep my phone here. And I'm like, that's fine. That's totally fine if you need to be there for a friend. But I'm not going to go out and do this one. I want to interact and talk and learn and, and share. And you're all on your phones. It's it's yeah. terrible disservice. Yeah. yeah. And that that the through line being like, that is the key to knowing yourself, right? And knowing your child so that they can discover their purpose like Olivia was able to do, exactly. right? Exactly. And Evan Evan as well. So let's get into a little bit. Um, I know there's a lot of parents out there that are navigating this route, whether it's gymnastics or so many other sports or even you know theater, um, dancing, any of the things, all of these passions take so much time, right? Yep. And you do get into sibling rivalry or there's only so much time to pay attention to certain things. Like what were some of the things you encountered um, with Evan and, and Olivia in this journey? Well, it was, we d- didn't know how, let's say, depressed Evan was with all the attention that went to Olivia. I feel very guilty about that. That's part of sending him out all these trips because I feel terrible. Um, we really didn't notice it until she was competing and he was wearing Healy shoes. Do you remember Healy's? Oh, them? yes, absolutely. Yeah. He was healing around. Then he was wearing a hat with a propeller on top of it. And I remember thinking to myself, and he's maybe eight, nine at this point, I'm like, he's looking for some attention. You know, so during the gymnastics meets, even we would each take turns because very often my former mother-in-law, who was fantastic, was with us, other some other family members or friends. So we would all leave the meet and miss some of her competing to go out and play with him because he kind of let us know he needed some attention. And, you know, the whole day revolving around her gymnastics meet, let's face it, on a Saturday, you know, you drive forever to one of these club meets, you sit there for five, six hours, the whole day is blown. So I started to notice he just needed this attention. And when I really saw that I felt that he was struggling, that's when I stepped in and made some life decisions for him. I had him go to boarding school um, because when I went to Penn, so many of the men in my fraternity, the women that I knew who had the experience of going to boarding school were so far evolved compared to me. I went to public school here in Glenview in the suburbs. And so I thought it would be a great idea. Told, talk to his mother about it. Nope. Talk to his sister about it. Nope. Talk to Evan about it. Nope. In-laws, other people, friends. Nope. Everyone thought bad kids go to boarding, boarding school. I'm like, no, it's an amazing opportunity. This is not for bad kids. And he will say to this day, it was the life-changing experience of his life. Really? Well, I, I wanted him away from Olivia's shadow. They yeah. both went to the same day school. That school ends in eighth grade. So she had been there for four years. They're three and a half years apart in age, but four years in grades. Yeah. And I did not want him to be, oh, are you Olivia Karras's brother? As what, what she put up with, he put up with for years. So I do think you just have to look at your kids and figure out what is something that may work for them. And I do believe this thing with schools and we have the luxury in the city of different school options, public, private, parochial, you name it. Some places where you live, you just have the one school. It really helped to get him out of her shadow. Yeah, and that's, really, awesome. that's really interesting because I was just having this conversation. My, my youngest will be a freshman next year and we have choices of schools around here. So he's gone from where he was K through eight with all the same kids um, and then going into a huge high school where you know, it sounds scary, but I said, you don't understand what an opportunity this is. Read. You I can go in, like you decide, you go in with your shoulders thrown back. Nobody remembers 
kindergarten. Nobody nope. knows your past story. You get this. It's a chance to define yourself and to decide what the story is. And I had the same thing. I transferred high schools and I look back at, at on my life and say, that was my first choice. My, my first decision for myself that changed the trajectory of my life. And then I went on to serve on the board of that high school until we moved. I thought my kids were going to go to that high school because I was so grateful for that experience. But so much of it had to do with my attitude going in. Right. right? You get to reinvent yourself. Yeah. You get to, you know, explore so many different things. I, I'm such, I've always said to the kids and any parents listening, expose your kids to everything. Let them decide what they want to do. But the more exposed they get, the more educated, the more knowledgeable, the more they know how to respond to situations just because you give them that opportunity. And so I'm, I'm a big fan. And boy, that was great that you decided to change schools, not your parents. Right. Oh, and it was it was honestly my first defiant move as a real people pleasing kid where I said, I'm not coming out of my room until you say I can go. And go wow. And I look back on that and I was like, dang. like and my family will still talk about it It was like no that was that was the first time I was like no I know I'm trusting my intuition and this is this is what's got to happen so it's a lot of courage to do that I got to say that I think it's great that you did it and Mm -hmm. I hope other people you know motivate their kids to have courage and make make some decisions they think are really the right direction for them yeah. Yeah. And my, the, the daughter that you met setting up, she, she did the same thing, leaving volleyball and saying, mom, I, I really want to be in theater. And that was a huge, another one of those moments where I'm like, it really is all about your attitude and your passion and where you, you know, and being able to listen rather than state how it's going to be as a parent, but having that relationship where you have the give and take and you can trust each other. It's, sure. it is, it's life-changing, you know, and it's sure. It, Yeah. Hey, I hope you're enjoying this chat as much as I am. For more inspiring conversations, go to BeBetterWithWendyJones.com. Where did I want to go from here? Um, The, oh, I know, the recruiting path. That's another huge part of your book. And something that so many parents, like, it's such a, so I have two athletes. And I will say, people ask me all the time, how'd you get two Division I athletes? And I'm like, I took them to practice. And I, (laughs) and I cooked, and I cooked him food. Like I, you know, there was, my daughter set out one summer and said, I'm, I'm going to get signed this summer. And she did it. And then my son went on his path and, you know, everything worked out and he got to Stanford um, playing men's volleyball. So, you know, I don't take a lot of credit in that path. And in your book, you don't either, because oh, at eighth grade, know. you knew I nothing. Right? I knew nothing. So, no. Give the audience a little so, bit of your background. Uh, on Olivia, this um, Olivia really did excel at, at a very young age. And the odd thing, again, about her club gymnastics, which can happen very often in gymnastics and in other sports as well, as you go up the food chain and it's getting harder and more competitive, and then high school comes in the scene, a lot of the girls all dropped out. Olivia competed alone at most of the competitions. And this is why she was so emphatic about wanting to go to a big 10, you know, type of school with a big team. She wanted to be a part of the team. So she won this one big meet. Um, She took first in her level in the country. And then we got the letter from Michigan in eighth grade. 
showing interest. And Ellen said to me, my former wife, isn't that nice, Jim? They sent us letters. I said, oh, it's really nice. Stupid. We didn't understand. I say in the book, you know, you, the school has swept left or whatever you do on the, on the, the apps on your daughter or your son. So we just had no idea that this was really snowballing until a new woman came to her gym um, who was terrific. And she had experience with helping people with, with navigating this whole scholarship thing. So she helped us, but Michigan, you know, locked her down between sophomore and junior year. Stanford also wanted her, Wendy, but I think your son may be a little smarter than my baby girl. They told <laughs> us she needed a 34 ACT. Um, twice the, the tutoring place that we sent her to called me and said, we think there's, Visa called me and said, we think there's fraud on your credit card. I said, no, that's not fraud. <laughs> She's doing a lot of tutoring and we got her a 25. They said she needed a 34 ACT and AP classes. So she's going to be a gymnast, a club gymnast, putting in 26 to 30 hours a week of training and take AP classes. I said, nope, not for Olivia. You know, would love yeah. for her to have the Stanford experience, which I hear is amazing. I, I visited there. But if it's not the right fit for her, it's not the right fit. No, absolutely. And you know that when you know your kid. And I, like I say, there was not that with my son. He was, he is a very, somehow he's very, he's my, of, of the four, he's the most chill. So there's something, and he will even say now, mom, the things I've seen, it's taught me a lot about just the right personality to be able to handle that pressure. He's really? the one of my four that I would say, yeah, he, he's, he's got this chill about him. Cause when you're, if you're too revved up, man, that pushes you into a lot of scary territory, you Very know, much. and not to say he's an amazing athlete and a really smart kid and he knows how to handle pressure, but I don't know. There's that, there's that intangible that you're like, okay, I, I see it. Like you there got is. it. And you know, Wendy, something that I was blown away by, we wrote about it in the book. I couldn't believe it when I read this article that 94% of all women in Fortune 500 C-suites, 94% were former athletes. They said on CNBC, which I watch all day, you know, when Ginny Romney stepped down from IBM, they literally said, the guy said, boy, they better start recruiting some division one athletes and get them groomed to take over these Fortune 500 companies. I was like, what? I mean, I think it's the discipline that they learn. I yeah. think that ability to manage you know, and, and micromanage school, friends, parents, siblings, their sport, their love. I mean, it's, it's huge. So that's something I had no idea of. And I have yeah. found, you know, very interesting. And, you know, in the fitness training business, I had a client a while back who's one of the biggest executive recruiters. And he literally said, are you kidding, Jim? When I'm recruiting someone for in their 50s for a C-suite job, I literally will take the division one athletes and put their resumes to the side to give them more work. I'm like, seriously, they did that 30 years ago, 35 years ago. Yes. There's something in those athletes that is special. And I never knew that. And I do see it now. Isn't that amazing? I will totally agree with that as an entrepreneur and running a super small shop. I have two people working for me. They're both, they're both athletes. It's crazy. Like, I mean, and I think it's the discipline. I also think it is the problem solving skills. They like, they do not ever say, I don't know how to do that. They're like, it might take me some time. I'll figure it, it I'll out. figure it out. Not, I don't know how. Right. And Absolutely correct. Yeah. No, yeah. It's a special skill. And, um, you know, it makes a lot of my staff are former athletes. And I really, 
didn't even get it back then. And I've been in business 36 years. Now I really get it. I just hired a lovely uh, young woman who was a division uh, two soccer player. And again, I see that the same type of ability to do exactly what you just said. I see her have that problem solving, that dedication, that work ethic. It's boom, boom, boom. I don't have to micromanage her at all. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that also gets me to the point, like, you know, there's been so much talk. Um, there's the amazing book on grit. Um, and I love that book, right? I, it's I love so that good. Book. It's so right. good. One of my and clients gave it to me and said, you've got to read this book. I flew through it in like two days. Totally. It's, oh. it's so good. And that concept of whether we learn to be gritty or, you know, are we born with that grit that Olivia had with the, the push the push cart, you know, I, do you have, um, what's your, what's your take on that? Well, my take that it's a great question, by the way, isn't it Angela? What's her name? Duckworth? Oh, Angela Duckworth. Yes. Duckworth. Yeah. That's right. I loved it. Yeah. And what I feel about that is my kids saw both their parents working. I mean, they absolutely saw a certain work ethic up first day, up very early in the morning, coming home late at night, their mother in a theater, you know, seven days a week, sometimes off on Mondays. So they were able to see it. We also, and I, again, I love this word persevere. We also taught them at a very young age to persevere. You know, you, if you want to do something, you've got to keep trying, don't give up. And that's where I think some of the, you know, innate, they saw their parents both had grit. And I think they learned to build their own way of grit because Evan's very different than Olivia. He's very artistic and, you know, he does different things and he's, he's kind of a nutcase. I love him to death, but he's, he's, he's wild. Um, he looks just like me 40 years younger. When oh, we go on vacation together, he and I like to ski together. I'll go and get like tea or something in the lobby and someone will say, that was your son here about an hour ago, wasn't it? I'm like, yeah, that is. They said, I said to my wife, it's got to be father and son. You know, there's no way that they're not. And so you just try to see how to foster it. And I think our job too, as parents, is to provide bookends, to see where they're going and help navigate that stream. And if it needs to open up a little bit, fine. If you need to fine tune it in a little bit, fine. But you really have to have a, a pulse on where you're child is going. And I, I wanted to bring this up because it's so important. I wrote that we have the mental health days. And it was when I saw Olivia completely stressed to the max. I'd say, what's tomorrow like at school? Any tests, any papers, any important things? Nope. I said, you're sick. Yeah. And what was amazing, Wendy, is she, I mean, she got up at like 630 for school. She'd sleep till noon. The first time she did this, I kept going into her room thinking that something was wrong. I've so been that there. Out out. She slept like close to, I don't know what it was, 13 hours, but you could see the look on her face when she came home the night before. She was destroyed and she needed that mental and physical break to be able to go back at it the following day. Wow. That is such powerful advice coming from um, someone who's been through the, the road that you've been on, because I think, you know, that there's so much out there right now on, you know, the grind culture and, and, and work really hard. And obviously we have all have amazing work ethics. Your, your kids have amazing work ethics, but that concept of recovery is so huge. And we have to teach them to manage that and not shame it no, you know, in the process. So if we can model that, you know, and then, and tell them it's okay. Like that is a lifelong gift. I think I fought that a long time until it really started becoming part of the narrative on really in the podcast world. Um, Finding mastery is one of my favorite uh, Michael Gervais podcasts. And they really started talking about, and then you started hearing about it in so many other circles that recovery is so important. So 
you know, and in gymnastics, I know as you've written, like, you know, she was training every single day. Beat so, up. so beat up, Wendy. I mean, her ankles, the, her, her the the broken injury. back, shoulders, and wrists. I mean, just, she's a walking, you know, she, I worry that her lifespan in heels is going to be short um, because she's had so much damage to her, to her body that they're hard for her to wear. I actually bought her some lidocaine thing I saw on Oprah's favorite things where you put it on. It's like what they use for surgery. And so it numbs your feet. She can keep the, the things on. She said, dad, you're a nut. I said, I saw these that I thought might help with you wearing heels, which she wears very infrequently. But when you do, you know, she goes, it's a life changer. So oh my we're, gosh, we're very much, we love yeah. the stuff. Does she have to wear heels in her everyday job now? She does not. She loves okay. to. I've got a little set. Her, her love is Carrie Bradshaw, as we wrote about. So she just, you know, I've got a definite uh, close horse. I'm like, honey, it's got to, we got to put a stop to this for now. We got to take a break. Yeah. And then, you know, then we have friends who, you know, have had clothes and then they don't really wear them anymore, who give them to her. And she's like, got this, this great stuff. And she has lots of fun. And so when she can, she does. And then off they come. So we, we, we use them. Uh, intelligently. We, we go out to dinner, we walk in gym shoes. She has her purse. She takes her heels out and puts the gym shoes in and she's I fine. I love it. I love it. Nope. So, I mean, and that, that's getting to how she has made this transition. And, and, you know, as I was reading your book, I mean, you were really hitting the point she was, she was, and she ended her career at Michigan and had to define herself. And as you were saying, really hit a point of like, okay, beyond, beyond being a gymnast, who am I? Am I? Oh, and besides writing the book together, which obviously was an amazing, something to come out of that process, but how else as a, as a dad, have you helped her navigate that journey of you are so much more than your sport? With, without a doubt. Great question. Um, we talk about her other passions. You know, when you have such a big elephant in the room of this one thing, and you don't get a chance to explore other things, my, part of my journey of parenting her was to try to expose her to a lot of things that she just didn't have the chance to do. Travel. I started, you know, taking her wherever I was going, you know, I'd have her come with me. Um, experiencing other places, going and doing things. I just needed to get her out and about because she just, and I always said, you know, that foot, you know, the, the gym smells like feet. You know, it's disgusting. This gymnastics gym. Totally. You're going to get you out of that foot smelling gym and get you, you know, explore other things. She liked PR. She liked marketing. I helped her a lot navigate interviewing, contacting people, using all of our resources. Let's face it, getting these kids a job these days, I, it's, you know, you've got to help them. It's really yeah. tough. Yeah. And you know, help them see what they may want to do, who they may want to work for. I had great friends who are like, I'm going to take Olivia to lunch and tell her everything she ever wanted to know about private equity, everything she ever wanted to know about owning a clothing store, you know, these types of things. So from everything you can imagine, uh, people were really generous with their time to kind of talk to her and see you know, what, where she wanted to land because she didn't know. That is so beautiful because I am such as my other passion is I'm such a, I'm so passionate about generational learning, right? I mean, what we can pass from one generation to the next is so powerful, especially one-on-one, -on -one, right? I mean, one -on -one and is, is being a different messenger, right? Mm -hmm. so, so it's not me telling my kid, but the other person that can come in, whether it's a coach or a friend or a, that those relationships end up being so powerful because they're hearing it from someone different than us. And the, the odd thing is, and I have, I'm sure you do as well. I have my really, you know, I, we have friends, we all do. But my real inner circle, what's interesting is four of the five people don't have children. 
Yeah. And they made the decision that they did not want children, which again, at my age, they're, they're my age and probably um, some are closer to yours. People didn't do that. You right. just didn't say, no. you know, everyone tilted their head when you said you didn't have kids. It means you had fertility issues, you know, mm -hmm. this type of thing. And so their being around Evan and Olivia has been so amazing because they love that one-on-one -on -one, having that time. And they always say, I love your kids and I get to walk out the door and go home. And you know, <laughs> I don't have to take it, have it 24 seven. So they were, again, I think surrounding yourself as, and your parents listening, who you choose as your friends has a significant impact on your children and it's it's always don't you love it when they really like someone or they don't like someone they're like dad i i don't think we really need to spend any more time with that person i'm like really they're like nope mm -mm, nope not for us you go do it on your own but no nope, we'll pass the next time you want us to go to dinner with them i'm like huh okay wow that yeah. right there i mean clip that that is such a beautiful you're you're absolutely right and my you know my best friend from high school was just here and she um spent a couple of nights with um my college daughter and i and she doesn't have any kids and my kids have that relationship with her and i've Thanks always said it's such a gift oh it's it, huge yeah it's, so it really, you're really you're is. absolutely right so um I'm really intrigued with um, where you have taken your entrepreneurial route in the world of fitness and recovery and aging and that process. And I wanted to get into that just a little bit um, as not to take too much of your time today, but where are you headed from here? You know, I have to be perfectly transparent, Wendy. I don't really have a, a solid decision in mind. I'm, I'm playing with an eighth book. Um, I, I spoke with an agent and I'm starting to, to play with that. My speaking is kicking up a little bit, but between you and me, I love to speak. It's really fun. But the days of like going from Cincinnati to San Francisco to Washington, D.C. in a matter of four or five days, that's a little bit too brutal on me right now. And so I'm trying to figure out what I do. I have the fitness training business. I have the cryotherapy and recovery business. And so I'm just I'm trying to figure it out. The one thing I don't love is the day to day is having to manage the, the people and everything day to day. It's a lot. Yeah. And I say this to people all the time with an entrepreneurial idea, figure out if it's a human capital business or like something you can produce, you know, a, a widget, a clothing store. Do you know what I'm trying to say? A bookstore. Yeah. What is it you want to do? Because being in the human capital business, which let's face it, every investment bank and law firm and medical practice and you know massage uh, place, all, they all are the same. Their people have to provide the service. And that's something people should really think about. Do you want to be the sole provider or do you want people to provide the experience you want to provide? That is a challenge. Absolutely. And you have to be a good delegator if that's right. what you want, right? Exactly. Oh, yeah. it would be right now. If you said, I'm not going to do my podcast anymore. I'm going to oversee four people who are going to now I'm going to mentor them and they're going to do podcasts and you're listening or you're in the room with them and you think to yourself, got to fix that for the next time. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Mm. She should have gone right here with the direction of the conversation. Why did she pivot back over here? It's really hard to have other people do something the way, you know, you want it to be done. And that, that's a challenge. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so the question that I always like to ask um, on all of my podcasts is if you could give one piece of advice to your younger self with all the hindsight that you have, um, what would you share with your 
apps hands down don't take yourself so seriously jim knock it off don't be so hard on yourself when i saw the da vinci code was that it where the guy beats himself with the thing you know he, he he beats himself on his back and he basically whips himself i've really done that to myself for years decades and wasn't to my advantage i've had a successful career i don't want to sound obnoxious but the true the true answer is i wouldn't do it again so all the books all the celebrities I've trained, all the travel I've had, all the opportunities I've had and everything else, I would not have done this again. Wow, that's powerful, that's powerful. You know, I lost decades. I literally lost decades um, for this, you know, desire what I said to myself and actually my Greek parents said, you know, be a man, make money. It's all they said to my brother and me, you know, nothing about being a good person or a good friend or, or charitable or anything like that, be a man, make money. And so. I, I was a little bit, you know, that was my mantra. Yeah. And I, I, I should not have done that and would not, I really do believe this whole thing um, about money. This is a quote I'm putting in the new book to make you laugh. Do you know who Dear, Dear Abby was? Remember the oh, advice? Oh, yes, uh -huh. okay. absolutely. Her, her name was Epi Letter. She lived right down the street from me. And years ago, we were at the Columbian Ball. I used to go to a lot of these ridiculous black tie events because it was yes. a great way to get business. Where do you go find people who are going to spend, pay a lot of money for fitness training, go to a $500,000 a plate black tie event. Absolutely. So we're out there on the dance floor and I see her because I'd seen her on my street. I've never talked to her. And she wrote this quote that I say all the time in speeches. And when I write a lot, it says, the poor want to be rich, the rich want to be happy, the single want to be married and the married want to be dead. So I said it to her, I went over to her and I said, excuse me. And I said the quote just like that. And she had a real thick Iowa accent. She goes, you're fun. I'm going to dance with you. And she pushes her date over to, to Ellen and she and I danced. And I really do think when you say the poor want to be rich, the rich want to be happy. I've spent 36 years with a lot of crazy, successful, insanely unhappy people. It, 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 it's, it's such a shame. I, I could not agree with you more. Um, and without getting, yeah, I've seen so much of that same story. And I really think with everything we're facing in America right now, which it's, it's a heavy story out there. And part of the reason I got into this podcast gig is because I feel like there's the wisdom is actually living in this circuit so much more than in the mainstream right now. And that's why podcasts are growing so fast, in my opinion. Not a doubt. Huge. Um, but I really think there's such a place for conscious capitalism. Mm -hmm. Like we are not a terrible nation, but we nope. need people where their vision and their values intersect. And yep. when that happens, amazing things happen for everybody from the, the individual who started the business to the families, to the communities, all the way out into the world. And Without so I, I love that message. And it's, it's really powerful to hear you say what you've said with all the success you've had. So I hope people hear that. And um, yeah, that is, it, it, it really resonates with everything I see out there. So, Without you know, that's, uh, far away from where we started with Confessions of a Division One Athlete, which I suggest that everybody go out and get this book that is raising an athlete um, or any, any child with passion, because we do as parents sacrifice for our kids and it's very worth it. But there are things we learn along the way. And you and Olivia did that so much justice to that conversation. So there's a lot to learn in this book and obviously a lot to learn from you. And I just thank you so much for joining me today because this was a fantastic conversation. Thank you. You've been an absolute delight. I'll come back anytime. Thank you so much. 
Um, we'll talk to you soon then. (laughs) Thank you for listening to what I meant to say. If you enjoyed this conversation, you know what to do. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen. And for more great stories and content, go to BeBetterWithWendyJones.com.